It's good to see you. Those watching online, I, uh, I want you to know that my facial hair has become my expression of joy. All right? So for those of you that are wondering every week why it's turning a little different, I just decided I can only control so much in my life, and then I'm not going to let the current situation steal it all. So this is my stash, and uh, I like it. It's kind of like the dad stash. That's what I feel like it is at this point. Well, I know uh, last week we took a little break from the Gospel of John. We did a a single called Stuck. Um, We're going to jump back into the Gospel of John this week. I highly encourage you, if you didn't listen or if you missed that, either online or being in person, uh, go back and listen to it, Anxiety and Anger. It's a good place to kind of start and to try to get unstuck uh, from some of that. I had some great feedback from that. I think it was a challenging sermon. I want you to know anytime I preach something like that, uh, it's normally to myself, you just get to listen. Um, It's normally what God is doing in my own heart, and I hope that uh, the Holy Spirit, as He always does, and as Jesus uses it, uh, to encourage you to take steps towards full life uh, out of anxiety or anger. So I hope that was encouraging to you as it was to me. Like I said, we're going to jump back into the Gospel of John. I have to tell you, uh, the Gospel of John uh, has been kind of with us for a little while. In fact, our podcast this week, I'm going to kind of I'll give you a little, uh, little insider information if you want to be looking for it on Thursday. We're, gonna, we're kind of releasing kind of this, uh, our walk since the beginning of John, kind of talking through some of our favorite things since we started. Um, and so if you're looking for that, that's on YouTube or on our Facebook page, you can look for that link. But it's been a little while. We started the Gospel of John last summer, and uh, we kind of walked through it. We took some pauses. We picked it back up in the spring, and now we've picked it back up this summer again. And we, we've, we've walked through this section of scripture for a large piece of time, and I have enjoyed it to the max, and this week is no different. Every time I come back to it, I just think, gosh, this, I mean, how many times can you read it over? And the challenge for me from the beginning and the challenge for you is to see this with fresh eyes, to, to see the purpose of why John would take the time to record this. And the, the, and the intention has always been, of course, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that these events are true, and that they lead to something more in your life. And so I know for me, when I pick something back up and I look at it again and I've held it before, I know there's a temptation in me to just go, "Ah, I know this. I got this figured out. I I don't need this part. I don't need this section. This doesn't make sense to me. And And I'll just tell you, like, there's a part every week that I get ready for a sermon when I pick the Bible up or I picked a certain text up, that there is a temptation to think that either I have it all figured out or that this doesn't relate to me. It just doesn't. So that being said, I just want you to know today is going to be a teaching. I'm going to teach three small sections from the end of 11 and into the middle of chapter 12. And the goal of this is not at the end to arrive, I think, at some grandiose statement or grandiose thought. I think the thoughts for today are very simple, they're very applicable, they're very easy for you to take. But I want you to see how... Just these small sections that we could skim over, that we could pretend like aren't that. Because John does a good job of keeping everything just so focused. Everything's so intentional, so focused. And, and there's not the intentional like, ex, ex, kind of explanation of detail. There's no just grandiose thoughts of like, hey, let's go really into depth on this. It is so intentionally focused. These sections are there. And they fit that criteria because he has a point to make. At the end of chapter 12, when we get there in two weeks, you're going to hear that basically Jesus decides that the people he loves are worth everything to him and that he's going to go to the cross. 
He, he has made mission, and the end of 12 is where John says, Jesus puts his foot down and decides. And so then the rest of the, the entire Gospel of John, 13 through 21, is the Passover week into the cross, into kind of the fruition of the glory of God, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And so at the end of 12 here, in just two weeks, I mean, we're kind of hitting the like downward slope. We've kind of been doing this, the roller coaster, click, 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 click. And we hit 12, the end, it's like, just get into 13, and we're just going to go all the way to the cross. Just, whoa, here we go. But today, I want to pause. I want to teach you three small sections, like I said, and I just want to lay them out before you. Give you a chance to digest them a little bit. See how they kind of maybe connect. And I think hopefully give us a place to move forward, even in our current situation, in our current circumstances, in your current walk with Christ. So let's start in verse 45 of chapter 11. Or 47, I'm sorry. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, then, that's important, what's before. Right before this is when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, and he said, take off your clothes, come out, all right? Then, all right, then the priests and the Pharisees, signs, if we let him go, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Now, how has this gone about? The whole point was, Bethany, where this happened, is two miles away from Jerusalem, which means that the people that Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, have a bunch of family in town to mourn and to basically surround them and to provide comfort. And then he gets raised from the grave. Guess what all those people do? They go back to Jerusalem. And then these chiefs, these teachers of the law, get word of this. And they, I like how they just call it a performing many signs. Like this just... Happens all the time. This is just a thing that happens, right? But then they, they translate this performing signs. They call him a man, by the way. And they translate it into saying he's going to take away both our temple and our nation. Keep going. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who's the head, the, ma the major guy, the high priest, the guy that is literally supposed to be the agent between God and his people, the high priest that year spoke up, you know nothing at all. Do you not realize that this is better for you that one man die and for the whole people? Uh, one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Man, if you knew how prophetic that was. Oh, wait, maybe he does. Look what the next verses say. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year he had prophesied, received insight, received wisdom, received a deep understanding of something, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that, that a nation, because of the sacred children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Now, pause. Do you see how close he was to getting it right? but oh, how wrong and far was he? Two observations from this. I just want you to pick these out. The first one is this. They say we will lose our temple and our nation. Our temple and our nation. 
There is something deep inside of this, this fear, this, this heartache, that they're seeing Jesus do something that is outside of their control. He is working and performing miracles outside of their authority, outside of what they can do, outside of what they think is right, and it is the fear of losing their temple and their nation as a whole. That's their fear. The second is this. Uh, it's better for one man to die than for a nation to perish. That's what they said. How close to the gospel is this, right? How close to it is it? But they're thinking of it in the reverse, right? They're thinking, hey, this guy is a seed to terrible things, and it's better for him to die now than for him to poison the whole nation. Scary. I want to point out two things. One, the temple is the place that they were meeting. It's also the place that God was. The nation is their influence, their authority, and their blessing. This is where God was coming through Abraham. So think about this. They're worried they're not going to be able to meet with God anymore, connect with God, and they're worried that they're going to lose their blessing and miss out on what God had promised. And they're willing to sin. They're willing to kill to try to keep it. It's intense. Now, in this section, why I'm pointing this out, these are the driving points. This is after Lazarus dies, and you read this section, you hear them say two or three times, we are going to have to kill this guy. This is where all of a sudden Jesus goes from sometimes like the crowd gets mentality, they try to grab Jesus at one point, you remember at 10, and they try to stone him, and he kind of slips away. And you remember, they kind of want to arrest him and talk to him. That's been kind of the thing. Now they literally come out, and they're like, we have to kill this guy to save our nation. You see how John is building the intensity of what is coming, the intensity of what is going to be done. And he's trying to expose to you their motives. Why? They see it as justifiable, and they see it as justifiable. One person's better than a whole nation falling away. We can't lose our connection with God, and we surely can't lose our blessing. We surely can't. That's section one. Then we go to section two, which is the beginning of chapter 12. We end with basically them saying they're going to kill Jesus, and then John picks up in chapter 12 with a continuation of Lazarus' story. Jesus is still in Bethany. He's hanging out with the family. Lazarus is at the table. They're lounging around. They're eating. How crazy would that be? How many blank looks is Lazarus getting? I'm just saying, if he's sitting at the table and he's eating, everyone at the table is doing this. He's still eating. He might actually be alive. They're waiting for that Casper moment, right, where it just falls through him. Like it doesn't actually eat. Like he's just, you know, he's fully there. But then the Mary, now if you remember from Levin, Mary was the emotional one. Mary had the question with deep emotional attachments. Mary was the one that came to Lazarus and said, why did you let my brother die? And it wasn't a theological question. It was a deep heart wrench of pain. Look at her emotional response. And Mary took 
about a pint of pure nard and expensive, expensive perfume. This word nard, I just, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, it just seems so weird in English. But when I, when I read the description of it, it was just this pure sense. Like, think of it like the most expensive essential oil you've ever seen. All right? And it was just used for all kinds of things, including perfume. It was just a medicinous kind of uh, oil that they used. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Now, pause. This, this is such a powerful demonstration of humility. I can't fully grasp it. Now, this should not get confused with Luke chapter 7 has the similar story. It's in a different location, and it's a different woman. It's a different woman. So this is the second time that we know in Scripture that Jesus has this happen. This expense to clean it. The humility that this would take in front of a group of people, not in a back room, not in a quiet place, public, enormous, wiped with her hand, and the house was filled with the, fragrant, the fragrance of the perfume. A powerful moment that the whole house could tell. He continues. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, I love how you watch John not be able to hold back with who Judas is. He's described as the one that Jesus loved, and he was one of the 12. And then you hear him just poke his head in here, right here. You see this? He's like, who was later to betray him? Objected. Like, he doesn't just say, Judas is scared, Judas is scared objected. He's like, no, 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 just to be clear. The one who betrayed him. He asked, why isn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? It's a worth a year's wages, which uh, when I look it up, it's 300 denarii, all right? A denarius or a denarii was one day's wage. It was one day's working wage. So 300 days worth of work was what this was worth. It's worth a year's wage. He's, he did not say this because he cared about the poor. Here's John again, inserting himself. Just imagine a little head as you're reading a story. And like, it's the guy that's like, hey, he didn't say this because uh, he cared about the poor. He said this because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. So you know what he said? He thought, man, if she'd have given me that, I'd have been 300 denarii. I probably could have stolen at least 30. Could have got a chunk of that. But you didn't give it to me. Keeps going. Says this, Jesus responds, a powerful statement, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now that seems heartless. We're going to come back to that. Just know it's there. Keep going, verse 9. Oop, maybe not. Maybe that's where I had you pause. Oh, it is where I had you pause. Okay. Now, why did, I, why did I have a pause here? Let me just figure this out for a second. I remember forgetting my spot. Now, why I had to pause is because I wanted to hang on that statement. I think I wanted to continue. Now, here's the thought process. The poor among you, it seems like compassion that should be in Jesus in that moment. You're like, wait a second, you don't care about poor people? Why would you, why would you say this statement? And I know for me, when I read John, these are the type of statements that normally jump out at me. 
These are normally the type of statements that I have to pause and go, okay, why would Jesus say that? Here's, here's Trevor's interpretation with commentaries and helpful things. You ready? Here it is. Jesus is more important than you and me. Remove the poor. Does that make sense? So here's the thought, as simple as it is. Jesus is worthy of the gift. Jesus is worthy of the gift. This has nothing to do with putting down poor people. This has everything to do with elevating who Jesus is. That can be tricky sometimes in our culture, can't it be? Let me, let me ask you this question. How easy is it to prioritize Jesus in your daily life when there are things that need to be done? Basically, Jesus is saying this. There will always be things that need done. I am still worthy of the gift. It's a good thought. One that I know in a day and time when there's a lot of things that sometimes we need to be done or that worry us. Worthy of my time. This story concludes, and then it, John records this. He says, The next day, a great cloud that, a crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This is talking about the festival. This was Passover, one of the most celebrated holidays in the Jewish faith of them being passed over by the angel of death and the story of them being uh, exiting from Egypt. But as he walked in, now, why are these palm branches being waved? Why is this going on? I'll remind you of the context. This is why John is putting this all together. Mary's response to Lazarus is oil with hair at his feet fully given. This is the overall people's response to what they have heard Lazarus, what has happened to Lazarus. This is everyone's response to what has happened in Lazarus. So we have the leader's response, kill him. We have Mary, who knew Lazarus' response, bathe his feet in oil, give him everything you have of value. Now we have the people's response. What are they going to do? That day a great crowd heard. They took palm branches off the trees and they went to him shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus had found a young donkey and sat on it, as is it written in Zechariah, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. If you want more explanation, look at Matthew or Luke of that. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, this word right here, glorified, is the same thing that he alludes to at the beginning of John chapter 11 when he says, don't you believe that God will be glorified when I bring Lazarus back? This is then talking about Jesus being glorified, which is the resurrection. Glorified, that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So it's this... Full explanation, full understanding. John, again, inserting himself in. Hey, just so you know, this is what was going on behind the scenes. We had no idea 
what was going on <laughs> till later. Now the crowd that was with him when they called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word and many people, because they had heard and performed the sign, went out to meet him. Again, this is the people's response. Three quick observations for you from this. Three quick thoughts. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the place where the temple exists, the place where the nation flows. Everything in Jerusalem flows to the entire nation. He is coming. He's arriving as a new temple. He is going to change it from a place and provide an avenue to the Spirit. The temple will no longer be stone. It will be in us. You want explanation of this? Go to Acts chapter 2. The light or fire that resembles on at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, it resides on each of the apostles' heads. Why is that important? Because the fire that stood before Moses and the fire that stood in the tabernacle in one place, the Holy of Holies, that would consume all things that stepped in there, then resided not in one place, but over each of them. The new tabernacle, the new temple. He's coming in to change some things. The second is, he's coming in, and he's bringing a new kingdom. It's a new kingdom is being born. This is a new covenant. This is a new start. This is a fresh thing. So I want to point out, the fears of the Pharisees were real. <laughs> they were absolutely real. They, they, were, they got it right. They, they, they were dead right. He's bringing a new temple, and he's absolutely bringing a new nation. It's going to be swallowed up. This is going to be different. It's a covenant that's going to pull Israel in. It's a continuation and a fullness. It's a new kingdom. And the third is, his life will give life to all the nations. They had it right. Caiaphas had it right. He said, look... This Jesus guy, when he dies, he's going to bring all nations together. That's what he was prophesied. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. To give his life. So that all nations could come underneath him. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is just explain why I laid these three sections out and taught them very quickly, but I hope will make sense here in a few moments. What these three sections teach me is this, that Jesus provides for you or Jesus provides for me a new heart. This is your temple. This is God's dwelling place. This is where God meets you. This is what God cares about. This is what God is most interested in. This is what Jesus came for. It's your heart. Why that's important is especially during times like a pandemic or an election, or a hardship, or even, I would say, in moments where we want to declare victory. This is what he's ultimately fighting for. He's not fighting for an outward expression that you would do something with your hands. He's looking for an inward confession and surrender that leads to that. He's not looking for you to just line your life up with all the right rules. He came to fight, to be with you. And ultimately, the temple is an expression of Jesus' relationship with you. He wants a place to connect. 
And this is where it happens. Two, the kingdom of light. We've read through the Gospel of John and know you know this. The kingdom of light. Light is life. Light is truth. Light is real. Light is revealed. This is not a kingdom where you have to pretend. This is not a kingdom where you have to try harder. This is a kingdom of light. It is fully known, fully loved at the right and the same place. It is right there, and it is new, and it is not like you've seen. It's not taking something you know and a little bit messing with it. It is brand new. And I know for a lot of us, that can be really tricky. You're like, what does that mean? How does that look? What will that be like? And I'm like, that's exactly right. Every time he talked with his apostles about this, when Jesus would break this down, they'd go, okay, so like, when are we riding into Jerusalem? And like, when are we going to take over? And like, when is Rome going to go away? And when is the nation of Israel going to become like capital of the world? And he's like, I don't really fight for any of that. I fight for a kingdom that you won't see. I fight for things that are unseen, a kingdom that's not of this world, in fact. Like light. Touches everything. Reveals all things. It's a new kingdom. Jesus provides a new life. It's the last one. This is the most important. Lazarus' explanation here is he's not dead anymore, but by nothing that he did is he alive again. This is a new life, a new way to live, a new explanation. I would just want to be a fly on the wall when Jesus and Lazarus get alone for the first time after that. What is that conversation like? They sit down by the fire. Everybody quietly just kind of goes into the house, kind of molds away like it happens, you know, and Jesus is just sitting there and Lazarus just like all of a sudden leans over and he's like, bro, what was that? That was a long nap. Did I die? Kind of. You were asleep. Did you do that? I did. Now what? <laughs> yes, we'll have to figure it out together. How helpful would it be? How helpful would this be if this was all of our stories? But this is how directly correlating it is to the gospel. This is what Paul describes when you die and you are a new creation. You are no longer what you were. This is who you are now. This is a full expression of what Jesus is all about. You would die to yourself and live in him that all the things that you see move and breathe, you know he is responsible for. And he's at the center of it. It's a new life. I wanted to put it into a statement because I know some people are statement people and I know sometimes this attaches to me, but in the heart, Jesus brings a kingdom of light and creates new life. In the heart, Jesus brings a kingdom of light and creates new life. Just think about that for a moment. Think about your heart. In my heart, that's where Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. Not of this world, thank goodness. A new place of light and real life. Not distractions, not things that will be untold or disproved or, or struggle to be realities. No, no, no. Light, real light. And that light brings new life. 
And that life is not of my own doing, but of someone else's God's. And that starts right here in that internal conversation in those of you and God. That's where that resides. That's where that starts. You and I have to deal with Lazarus being raised from the grave right here. It's the point of these stories. When you hear a man died and was raised from the grave, what does your heart say about that? How do you deal with that? What do you say to that? Because God wants to meet you. Bring a kingdom to you. And give you life. Think of Psalm 51 with this. How I would pray for God to come into my heart and to bring new things. How I would pray that his spirit would give me supernatural understanding in times of brokenness. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Is this not it? Come into my heart. Come in here. Reveal your kingdom. Don't let me run away. Don't let me be broken. Don't turn your face. Meet me in this new temple. This one-on-one relationship. Sustain me there. Do your work of your kingdom. Reveal this new life. If you offer this to Jesus, I want you to give generously to him this week from your heart. Meet him in your heart. Give to Jesus generously this week. Three ways. First, give him your focus. Just like the Pharisees, just like how they were tempted to just pass him by, to focus on all the negatives and brokens and fears and things they could not change, just like how they were tempted to see his limitations in their mind of what he could do, don't do that. Give him your focus as Lazarus would. Give him your focus like Mary would. Give him your focus to say, okay, I believe that you are the God of the universe. You created all things. I believe that you brought Lazarus back from the grave. I believe you do incredible things beyond my understanding. I will choose to put my eyes on you and focus on you. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the plunder of our our politics, in the midst of the brokenness of our planet, I will choose to give you my focus because you are worthy. Two, you will give generously this week of your treasures. Do not neglect the treasures that you have. Now then, before you go too far, this is not me saying give your money to the church. This is saying hand over to Jesus your treasures because your heart can be taken hostage by them. I love how John points out that Judas was greedy and a thief and wanted the treasures where Mary gave them up to God. Be generous with things you hold dear in your life. I'm talking about the physical things that you have. 
I love the adage that if you have something that you would not, it has a hold in you. That's not wisdom. That's you being selfish and greedy. Be careful having something in your life that you would not loan out or let someone else who is trustworthy borrow. It may have its claws in you already. This might be the time that God shows a need and your treasures are what he's asking for. Give generously. The third is this, and this is the hardest one, you guys. Give generously of your time. And I know for a lot of us in here, you you hear me tell you, 10 minutes a day would change the rest of your days. If you would just give Jesus 10 minutes of your time to read a passage and pray, to let him mold your heart, I promise you, if you did that 10 minutes a day over the course of time, it would change your marriage, your relationships, your parenting. It would change your self-esteem, your understanding of self-worth. It would defeat and destroy strongholds of sin and addiction. It would hold you accountable. It would give you pathways to peace. It would sustain you as only living water could. I believe it is the bread of life, and I know that you can do that. but you have to choose to give maybe it's more than 10 minutes for some of you but man don't be afraid to give your time the last thing I just want to tell you is we give our focus, our treasures, and our time is that Jesus is still worthy of it the temptation this day, this age is to doubt and to worry and to see no end to our suffering or hurt or to see confusion, lack of control, or to get mad at the things that won't change. And I will tell you, there is just something so settling and peaceful and recognizing that if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the grave and he can conquer that, that there is something in him that is worthy of every denaria, every piece of time, every discomfort that we have. And he is still worthy of it. This week, give generously of your focus, your treasures, and your time. Because Jesus is still worthy. We pray for you.